This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Galley. Our guest this week is Shirley Bloomfield, CEO of the NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with NTCA Shirley Bloomfield next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. With crop prices falling, farm income plummeting, and Mother Nature wrecking havoc, the private sector crop insurance infrastructure is more important today than ever. Providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. A Federal Communications Commission decision last year to declare broadband as a utility recognizes the role data communications play in emergency services, health care, and education. Shirley Bloomfield, CEO of the NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, says the nearly 900 independent telecommunications and broadband providers she represents embrace the challenge of connecting rural residents to the rest of the globe and recognize the role they play in rural economic development. You think about attracting entities into your community. We've been working lately with some folks who do site development, you know, those who represent uh, large car manufacturers or other manufacturing interests or innovation plants. And we've been talking to them about what do you look at? What is your checklist? Typically, number one and two on that checklist will be your broadband access, your, your connectivity, the ability for that entity to be able to reach their markets um, in a dependable, accessible, and affordable way. It's huge. It's huge. And how do you make those uh, uh, communities attractive? Um, I look at my industry. We're telecommunications. We're broadband. You want... You want technology folks. You want people who understand what that next generation is. Well, they're going to have young families, and you've got to make it attractive for them to want to come in and live in your community. What does that look like? Can the spouse get a job? Can your kid get a good education? What's your health care situation? All of those things are things that I think broadband, um, and when people utilize broadband, um, can be very powerful for economic development. Let's talk about the Federal Communications Commission and some decisions that have affected the rural broadband industry. First of all, the FCC last year designating broadband as a utility. What did that mean? So one of the things that that designation really meant, you know, that really had a lot to do with what what becomes required coverage. Up until this time, there has been a program called Universal Service that was established in the 1936 Communication Act, codified in the 1996 Communication Act, that said citizens, regardless of where you live, should have access to affordable and comparable services. And... Up until last year, that was really regarded for a voice product. That basically said everybody deserves access to a, to a dial tone, to the ability to have this conversation that you and I are having. But it did not extend to broadband. So I think that decision by the FCC was a real equalizer. It basically said, you know what, we think broadband actually is pretty much almost as essential as voice service, and we think people have the right to have that. So what that did is it allowed this universal service program to extend its support 
to the support of networks that provide broadband to rural consumers. So that was big because it's going to allow even more people, we believe, to have access to broadband. And it will be more motivating for carriers to build broadband to even more rural citizens, both those that my folks serve, and if all goes well, we should be hopefully seeing the same for those that are served by some of the larger carriers that choose to take universal service funding. Was it important that broadband carriers were not required to contribute to the universal services fund? Well, this is an ongoing question, and and basically right now, Jeff, the way universal service is assessed, it's assessed on essentially long distance um, and voice products. We we all know that those are, you know, there's a steady trend line down on um, designating those 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 revenues specifically. So what we'd like to see, you know, is how do you, to build broadband networks, shouldn't you be assessing all networks? And shouldn't you be assessing those that actually access and utilize these networks? So this is a big issue under what we call universal service contribution reform. And now that the FCC has actually finished their first step on USF reform, we would really welcome them pivoting to focus on who contributes into the fund, is it sufficiently sized, are there enough resources to ensure that we really do have ubiquitous broadband throughout this entire country, regardless of where you live. Two recent decisions by the FCC allowing Internet service providers to use universal service support funds to establish standalone broadband service. This was a really big decision. This was really important to, um, I think, rural citizens. What it basically said is, you know, you, you move into a town and um, that, that might be served by somebody who has universal service support. And let me just say, AT&T gets universal service support as well. This is not something that is just a small carrier um, sharing pool. But... Um, you know, what What it is saying is if you've got a, somebody who moves in and says, you know what, I use my cell phone. I, I actually don't use a landline. I don't want a landline. Up until this decision, uh, the carrier would not be able to get support for your line if you just said, I just want your broadband service. That's all I want. I just want, I just want access to the Internet. So what was happening is even though the networks are commingled, there's a lot of elements that are used for voice that are used for broadband, that consumer would have been paying a huge amount. I think we estimated that the monthly cost would be about $160 a month without universal service support for a rural consumer who just wanted broadband service. What this decision has done is it has actually allowed the broadband elements to be captured. The fund is not sufficient enough to make it comparable to urban America, but we, it's going to bring down the cost of providing standalone broadband until we can take care of ensuring that we can actually raise the size of this fund. Does this allow you to move into those areas underserved? You know what? There are some other provisions, um, not so much the standalone broadband, but there's some other provisions in the USF reform order that just came out that will actually be motivating for folks to build into more unserved areas. There's going to be a build-out requirement, which basically says if you get universal service support, you are hence committing to build out to this part of your population and then this part of your population. It will take those edges further out. This this order um, has 
already been in place for what we call the price cap carriers, which are um, everybody from AT&T to Windstream to CenturyLink to Frontier. Those provisions um, were put in place for them last year, so they're ahead of us. They have built out requirements, and what they are in the process of doing is saying, what are the areas that I'm going to take the money in? Because if I take that money, I must build out. And then if I choose not to take the money, I have no obligation. So we are waiting to see where they will actually commit to. And to be really honest with you, um, I'm hoping that my folks will then have an opportunity once large carriers decide where they're not going to go. I think a lot of my carriers will choose to go in and provide service into those areas. But that is something that we're going to have to see over the next two, three, four years. But yes, there are provisions in this order that will actually extend the um, scope of the networks. It appears to me that there are some pillars in providing broadband. First of all, uh, is it accessible? Second of all, uh, how good is it? How fast is it? And then the third is the affordability of it. Another decision by the FCC expanding lifeline subsidies to help folks pay for Internet service. Right. So they acted last week on Lifeline, which, again, as you noted, helps low-income families um, have access to Internet service. And, you know, there's still some details of the order. You know, they voted on this. We probably won't see what it looks like um, in detail for another few weeks. But obviously, you know, it is important to, to make sure that everybody has access to the network. Um, and how that fits in. You know, my only, um, you know, I think it's really important. I think things like E-rate are really important. There's all part of the universal service family. My one frustration is that the fund that the small rural carriers are under, and again, we serve 40% of the land mass, is capped at about $2 billion a year. These other programs aren't capped and have inflationary growth factors. And we continue to remind the FCC that unless you have that underlying network, unless you have that provider providing broadband into your community, you can give people lifeline subsidies till the cows come home. But if there is no broadband to be had, then it is simply an application, you know, and a service that, that rides over this broadband network. The program doesn't make sense unless you fully support the network itself, to be honest with you. So our program is capped, has no inflationary growth factor. It is smaller than these other programs, and yet you can't do E-rate and access your schools, and you can't do Lifeline and access your low-income consumers unless you actually have these networks. It looks as though the bulk of the funds last year out of Lifeline were spent for either landline or cell phone service. Yes, that is true. So it'll be interesting to see as people pivot to a broadband service. And there's other barriers, and that's the other thing. Uh, part of this is, you know, do those low-income folks have computers? Um, actually, we find that the that the rate is actually extremely low. If you're using that lifeline to use your smartphone, that's one connectivity. So that is a connection to the internet. But is that helping somebody apply for jobs? Is that helping somebody have access to other federal resources? Or maybe it's just me and my eyes are getting too old to be able to do a lot of that stuff on a small screen. So you do have some other barriers out there that will need to be overcome to make some of these programs more effective. Of the two decisions recently by the FCC, how does that help you grow? How does that help you serve? What's left on the table? So I, I think it helps us grow in that it's provided some regulatory certainty. For the last four or five years, um, the FCC has been talking about reforming, throwing out different ideas. 
Um, what I have seen in our sector of the industry is it's made carriers very nervous. This is a very expensive proposition, and even if you do it as a nonprofit, even when you're a community-based provider, you need to make sure that, you know, you think that you can recover some of these costs as you're plowing fiber um, and infrastructure into your areas. Probably the biggest thing it has done in my book is it has actually increased. Um, they know. They see the road path. It, it's not perfect. There are things that are going to have to be tweaked and fixed along the way. But at least carriers now know. And what we've already seen in the last few months, um, because we've been kind of coming to a close on this, is folks have been going back to USDA, to RUS, to actually start loan proceedings. Um, we have not seen people borrowing as much as loan authorities have been available to them. This signals to me that they're ready to build. They're ready to say, you know what, it's not going to be everything I want it to be, but it's enough for me to figure out where I go next. And that's going to be really important for rural communities. Are you seeing some pushback from other sides of the industry now that funds would be available from the universal service uh, funds and from from Lifeline? You know, I, from the other sectors in the industry, I don't really think quite as much, and I think in part because my folks serve areas where nobody else wants to serve, and yet I think we all realize how important it is to get service out to to these rural markets. And so I look at that and I think, you know, every once in a while you'll get competitors who pop up and say, you know, me too, or we want access. Um, but even through the many things the FCC has tried, broadband experiments um, and different things like that, uh, you need carriers who are willing to make a commitment to these communities. You don't just fly in and, and say, you know, I'm going to be a fly-by-night operation. Or worse yet, you don't come in and simply serve the donut hole, which may be the small town, and then simply choose to forego the outlying areas. And that's what we have kind of seen in the past. So I think at this point people are pretty cognizant that um, it's going to be a, a local provider that's going to bring the service, and folks are happy to um, hopefully see these folks be able to do even more than they've done in the past. What legislative action or what administrative regulatory action still needs to happen to help you to accomplish your goals and your mission? It's an excellent question. And I think there's a few things. Um, you had raised earlier contribution reform. You know, who pays into universal service so these networks can be sustained and be affordable for all? You know, it is simply not sufficient. And the fact that this fund has been held to $2 billion, the fact that there are entities out there that are so important to people's daily lives, you know, whether it's, it's, uh, it's, it's access to Amazon or it's Netflix, we need to start having those who actually use and monetize these networks also help support these networks. And that means contributing into the Universal Service Fund. Without that support base growing, you're going to find that it's going to be hard to reach new markets, it's going to be hard to reach those unserved, and it's going to be hard to sustain these networks because these networks are living, breathing networks. You don't just put a network into the ground and walk away and say, job is done, broadband's there. These networks have to evolve all the time through hardware and software. Um, so I'd love to see you know, folks pivot to contribution reform. Let's really talk about who's contributing and how we sustain this. I also think the ability for these rural carriers to continue to be the one-stop shop for their customers. One of the things that we didn't really touch on is because of where these carriers are located, oftentimes they are also the only video provider in town because, again, the large cable entities are going to go to places where they can more easily monetize. So virtually all of my 900 providers are also video providers. 
um, and whether they're doing it as an over-the-top service, whether they're doing it as a cable service, whether they're doing it as an IPTV service, um, they're recognizing that rural Americans actually should have access to entertainment um, as well. But what we find is the programming costs are astronomical. And if you are Comcast, you get to dictate that. If you are a small company, um, you are told how much that programming will be and you pay it or you don't get the programming. So what we see is that cable rates for rural Americans is also significantly higher because the cost of programming is so much higher. We would love to see some initiatives that actually equalize that cost of programming so that rural Americans are really having comparable services and access in that venue as well. Is the lack of funds preventing you from embracing technologies that might do the job better? No, I think um, the beauty of my folks, because they're small, is they're incredibly innovative. They don't have to go through the 14 layers that a Bell company has to go through. They try a lot of technology. As a matter of fact, they were the first um, in the industry to actually move to an IPTV model, and they have been moving faster to an over-the-top model than others. They have wireless access. They use unlicensed spectrum. I, it's really not so much resources as do you have a big enough customer base to actually roll out and sustain some of these services. It's pretty tough. If you've got 3,000 subscribers, you're having to make, even if you've got some cool technology, you don't have a lot of people to kind of spread those costs among. Um, Scope and scale is probably a bigger issue. There is another area with regard to broadband that the NTCA has talked about a lot. Can you explain a, a smart world community and what that means? Absolutely. So Smart Rural Community is an initiative that we started about four years ago um, when we started looking around and, and seeing everybody get the buzz about smart cities and smart homes. And we thought, well, you know what? Rural America is really smart, and rural America actually has some very innovative things that they can bring to the table, certainly pull, you know, provide a lot of our energy resources, our natural resources. And so what we did is we created this Smart Rural Community program, and what we did with that is we actually challenged our carriers to go and work with their communities to say, you know what, you've got robust broadband here, but now what are we going to do with it? How do we utilize this broadband for the good of our community? What does it mean? What does it mean in terms of healthcare? What does it mean in terms of education? And we challenged our carriers and we created a recognition and an award program. So what our folks have been doing is um, basically a lot of what they've already been doing, but it is that extra push to say, all right, you've got the network. Now talk to your local school superintendent. What do they need? What can you be doing? What's innovative? What's cool? Um, and how can your entire community um, embrace the fact that you have this robust network? What does that mean in terms of job development and economic development? So, for example, we've got communities all across the country. Um, we award probably about 15 every year that are doing things like tying their school nurse offices together to a local clinic so that those low-income children are able to go to the school nurse and actually get their regular health care that way. We've been having communities that have tied their farm networks together um, to create some really interesting economic opportunities using the broadband network, but they've done it as a community. So the community has pride in it. The community has ownership in the network. They are partners with the, the broadband provider that we've got out there. We literally do things like they have highway signs that say you are entering a smart rural community, and you have no idea what that does in terms of community pride and in terms of, um, frankly, the ability to actually attract 
new industries and businesses because they're able to market themselves as come on in. We're a smart rural community. Not only do we have your robust broadband that you're going to need, but by the way, our, our community knows how to use it, and we do it collaboratively. And um, it's pretty cool, and it's pretty exciting. And and we uh, we are hoping to see you know another 15 designated later this fall. And uh, I think there's a lot more smart rural communities out there that aren't getting awarded, but are still doing great stuff. Shirley Bloomfield, we want to thank you for spending time with us here on Open Mic. This is Open Mic, and you have an open forum. So, Jeff, I've appreciated the opportunity to share with um, you and your listeners today how important these local community-based broadband providers are. And I encourage folks to actually take a look around and, and see who is providing their service. And um, because, again, I think broadband is going to be the path to the future. I think it is important for our communities. I think it's important for our kids. And I think it's important for economic development. And I think we've, again, just scratched the surface of how broadband can truly be the equalizer. So we've appreciated the opportunity to chat with you a little bit about that. Our thanks to Shirley Bloomfield, CEO of the NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley. 